understanding of the First World War and how over 60 branches were applied. For more information, visit our website at westernrugbyassociation.com. It is the 13th of May 2019, and this is episode 113. Today's programme, Michael Nugent talks about his latest book on the 36th Ulster Division during the German 1918 Spring Offensive. This is published by Ealing. I spoke to Michael from his home in Coleraine, County Antrim. Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about your book on the 36th Division during the German Spring Offensive in March 1918. Before we commence, can you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, well, good to speak to you, Tom. Um, I retired a few years ago from a, a fairly long career in, in public service and I, I had some spare time and I started researching my family. Uh, it was talked about in the family about two of my great uncles uh, who left for the Great War and never came back. And I, I only knew them by names and, and nothing else really was, was talked about them in the family. Uh, I, I discovered, did a bit of research and discovered that the youngest, who was named James, uh, he was killed age 17, along with 263 of his comrades uh, with the 2nd Battalion Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers at the Battle of Festibear uh, on the 15th of May 1915. Now, I have never heard about Festibear. I knew nothing whatsoever about it. Uh, and as I carried a bit of further research, I discovered there was very little written about the battle. Uh, so I decided to, to write an account of the Inniskillings in the battle, which, which developed into a book. And that, that was my first book. Uh, it's titled, uh, It Was an Awful Sunday. Uh, and it was about the Inniskillings experience uh, in that battle. Um, I've been gripped ever since. Um, as, as <laughs> Great War research has become an obsession from, from that start. Why do you think a book is necessary on this subject? After I finished my first book, I, I was looking for a, a, something else to, to um, look at in detail. And I actually thought about uh, Langemark, um, which was a, a horrendous battle for, for both 36th Ulster and 16th Irish divisions. Um, but I, I didn't have enough time, I thought, to, to look at it. Uh, so I looked at, at March 1918, and again, for the same reason I wrote, I wrote my first book on the Inniskillings, it's a story that has never been told in detail. And for many people in Ulster, and, and in Northern Ireland in particular, the Battle of the Somme in 1916 is the Great War. Uh, and I think that the German Spring Offensive, the war had been going on for four years, people were, were tired, uh, it was perceived by many as a, a defeat. And, and what I wanted to do is examine uh, the details of how the, the division performed uh, in that battle uh, to see if it was a defeat, first of all, and uh, how it impacted on the division, and, and to bring the story of the 36th Ulster Division in March 1918 to a wider audience. So before we uh, start on the detail of actually what happened during those, those days in late March, can you tell us about the 36th Ulster Division, its origins, and who composed its ranks? Certainly, uh, at the outbreak of war, uh, Field Marshal Lord Kitchener asked for the Ulster Volunteers initially to form an infantry brigade, which with enthusiasm and patriotic fervour at the time ended up a division. Now, the Ulster Volunteers were the Ulster Volunteer Force. And this was a, uh, a quasi-military organisation raised in 1912 by Sir Edward Carson to oppose home rule for Ireland by force, if necessary. Now, the Ulster Volunteer Force was based on military formation. Its members were familiar, familiar with uh, military discipline. They did quite a bit of drilling. And they were also familiar in the use of firearms. And therefore, they were very attractive uh, to Kitchener and, and the military authorities. 
Now, when they were called upon, they also volunteer force units enlisted together, similar to, to the PALS battalions, uh, particularly in the north of England. And when the division was decimated on the first uh, uh, first week of the Somme, this had a, a disproportionately adverse effect on towns and villages throughout Ulster. Uh, recruiting remained a, always remained a, a problem within Ireland. And uh, by 1918, many of the recruits uh, came from English regiments. And one of the reasons that I, I well, one of the main things I was interested about in the book was to see if it could still be called the Ulster Division in, in 1918 because of the number of, of English recruits that had come to it. Now tell us about the German Spring Offensive, obviously that was launched in March 1918. What was its purpose and why? what were the, the 36 Ulster Division doing, um, should we say, in the way of that attack? Okay, the, the, the Spring Offensive was really the, the last major throw of the dice to the Germans in, in the Great War. Um, they had suffered equally with the British and French armies in, in 1917. And with the United States with its massive resources about to enter the war, the German High Command knew that they had to mount a, a decisive offensive to try and end the war. And in that, uh, in their planning, they were bolstered by cessation of facilities with, with Russia uh, in late 1917, which freed up many divisions from the Eastern Front. From a military point of view, the best place for the Germans to attack was at the junction of the French and British armies. And the German plan, it was quite simple, it was to force a wedge between the British and French armies uh, and then uh, turn right <laughs> and drive for the French coast, thereby isolating uh, the British army, uh, something which they, which they successfully did uh, you know, 20, 22 years later um, at Dunkirk. Um, the, the role of the, of the 36th Ulster Division, um, the division at that time was, was part of General Goff's 5th Army. And they had taken over a portion of the front line from the French. So they were in the very right of the, of the British line. Uh, and they took over this front line from the French. And that, that came about, it's, it's quite bizarre, but that actually came about uh, an agreement between the, uh, Lloyd George and, and uh, Poincaré, the, the British and French Prime Ministers. And that decision bizarrely, was taken without recourse to the Commander-in-Chief, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig. He, he was presented with a fait accompli. This is going to happen. Deal with it. Uh, the role of the Ulster Division, along with the other frontline divisions, was simply to repel the enemy. However, a new defensive system was employed based on readouts or strong points, with, with defence in depth as opposed to, to trench systems, which, which the British Army was, was familiar with. So the, these readouts... Uh, there was a forward or outpost zone where the battalions deployed were to hold the enemy for as long as possible. And they were, they were expendable, really. Uh, they were to hold the enemy as, as much as they could. Some miles behind that was a battle zone where, as the name suggests, uh, the main battle would take place. And then a rearward zone where the reserve battalions were located. And they could be rushed forward to assist those in, in the battle zone. And that, that was the, the basic plan. However, few had any faith in this system because it had never been tried before. You have to remember that the, the British Army had been on the offensive basically since the end of, of uh, or beginning of September 1914. And they weren't used to defensive operations. So you're asking them to, to take part in a defensive operation with a new defensive system, which, you know, really it, it was bound to fail. So what happened on the 21st of March when the Germans launched their attack? I mean, how, how did the, the 36th Ulster Division respond and cope with the, the onslaught that the Germans threw at them? The, the, artillery, the German artillery bombardment 
was was the greatest artillery bombardment of of, of the Great War. Uh, it lasted five hours from from 4:40 a.m. in the morning to 9:40 a.m. They targeted forward and rear zones and lines of communication. Now, the interesting thing is that the Germans had voluntarily ceded the ground that the British held in the retreat to the Hindenburg Line in 1917. And as they retreated, they had every likely defensive point and road mapped. Now, the German artillery bombardment, to give you some sort of idea of the scale, uh, it works out, uh, I've, I've had to resort to my, my school days here, it worked out at 65 rounds a second along the entire front. And if you take the, the British bombardment at the Somme, which lasted a week, that equated to three rounds a second. So you can see that it was, it was a hurricane bombardment which, which took place. And the infantry attack began at, at 9.40 a.m. in dense fog, and that, that's really important because nobody on either the British side or the German side had predicted that there was going to be dense fog. They knew it was going to be missed. Accounts from the Times stated that a man couldn't be seen at 10 paces up until 1 p.m. So the Germans attacked it at 9.40 a.m., so it about three hours uh, to, to advance as, as far as possible. So in common with many other divisions, the, the forward zone battalions of the 36th Ulster Division, they were surrounded before they knew that an infantry attack was even taking place. And each of the forward battalions uh, of the 30, 36th and then from right to left with the 12th Royal Irish Rifles uh, and in the centre the 15th Royal Irish Rifles and in the left uh, the 2nd Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. Although they were surrounded, they, they continued to fight until late into the afternoon before surrendering, as, as, as further fighting was futile, as the Germans were miles behind them, the battalions in the battle zone put up strong resistance, and they weren't overwhelmed. But they were ordered to withdraw in, in the evening as part of an organised withdrawal, and they withdrew uh, across the, the uh, River Somme and St Quentin Canal. But basically, the three battalions in, in, in the front and the forward zone ceased to exist on, on the first day. But in the following days, and, and it was fascinating researching this. There are examples of exceptional heroism as, as the division continued a, a fighting withdrawal and, and constant contact with the enemy, which was a very hard thing to do. For example, on, on the 22nd of March, the 1st Battalion Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers, they repulsed attacks. The strength of the uh, battalion strength was 800 men. They repulsed attacks from two regiments of the Prussian Guards until they were overwhelmed by force of numbers. On, on, on the 24th, uh, near the village of Cugny, the 2nd Battalion Royal Irish Rifles they fought the last man against the German 5th Guard Division. And when they ran out of ammunition, they fixed bayonets and charged the enemy. And, and I also have to mention the cavalry charge, which, which completely threw me, a cavalry charge in 1918, uh, on the same date by a detachment of the 6th Cavalry Brigade, which undoubtedly saved the Ulster Division, as well until then had been a, uh, an organised withdrawal threatened to turn into a rout. And, and the charge, the cavalry charge, bought the division vital time. It had a crucial, a crucial time in the withdrawal. It bought them time to reorganise and provide a much needed, uh, provide a much needed, needed boost to morale. And, and the, the uh, withdrawal of the Ulster Division lasted uh, from the 21st. The last offensive patrol was on the, on the 28th, so it was a week. They were in action, constant action. Uh, they had 967 men killed. Uh, they had between four and a half to 5,000 men taken prisoner, primarily because of the uh, the fog and the Germans were able to advance so fast. And you, you partly touched on this, but why was the division overwhelmed so quickly? Or maybe this is this happened across all um, of the, many of the divisions in the 5th Army on, on, the, on 21st of March. But what made the German attack so devastating? Well, yeah, force of numbers, first of all. The, 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 uh, 
uh, by my calculation, the three frontline battalions of the 36th Ulster Division uh, on, the, uh, on the morning of uh, the 21st had a strength of about 2,300 men. Facing them were three German divisions, uh, totaling 45,000 men. So, you know, they, they were outnumbered, heavily outnumbered, and the fog aided the Germans to, to advance very quickly. And uh, But the 36th didn't suffer in isolation. Uh, they suffered similarly to many of the, the other divisions in the front line. The, the four divisions that comprised 18 Corps, which was, which was uh, the Corps which 36th was attached to, they suffered over 21,000 casualties, uh, and the 36th suffered 6,000 of those. Uh, so uh, all, of, all the frontline divisions were heavily outnumbered. It wasn't just the, the Ulster Division. Um, but the 5th Army, interestingly, the 5th Army commanded by General Goff, whenever they took over this extension of the line from the French, they held 42 miles of front line, and that, they had 13 divisions uh, to do that with, and it worked out at, at just over three miles per division. This was more than a mile per division more than the divisions of the Third Army, so General Goff had a bigger area to, to defend. And there were few reserves on the British side. There were, there were two divisions, but getting them to the front was, was going to be problematic. And the French, who had promised support, took a lot of time to get organised. And when the time came to look for a scapegoat, as in all military uh, operations that go wrong, General Goff was was uh, in the firing line and he, he was an obvious choice. But in hindsight, I certainly criticise him for some of the, the actions that he that he did. For example, on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, he gave the entire Fifth uh, Army a day off uh, when, their, when their defences weren't complete. This is completely bizarre. Uh, but uh, they they had church services and they had sporting events and not just not just uh, divisions with Irish battalions in them. Everybody, everybody took a day off. Uh, I'm not sure of his style of management, but in hindsight, in the, in the general scheme of things, I don't believe as much else the general Goff could have done with it with the resources that he that he had available. And were there any VCs awarded um, in the 36th Ulster Division's defence? Yes, the, the, there were two on. One was awarded on the, on the first day. Uh, it was to second lieutenant Edmund De Wind, um, an interesting character. He's from Comber in, in County Down, and he had actually uh, emigrated to Canada and uh, enlisted in the the army there, and had served in France uh, as a private soldier with with a machine gun uh, battalion. Uh, he then applied for a commission and uh, was commissioned into the 15th Battalion Royal Irish Rifles, one of uh, who knows the North Belfast Volunteers. He. Uh, along with two NCOs, and it's important to remember notes written by the commanding officer after it. He he notes that Edmund De Wind and, and, and his two NCOs, uh, a Corporal Getgood and a, a Lance Corporal Walker, he states in writing all three won the Victoria Cross several times, and this was for clearing advancing Germans out of out of uh, a communication trench. Um, however, Second Lieutenant De Wind was was. Uh, killed. Uh, he was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross. Uh, the, the two NCOs were, were taken prisoner and uh, it was only in 1920 they each got a Distinguished Conduct Medal um, with, with no citation. The second Victoria Cross was, was won on the morning of the 22nd and uh, it was won by uh, Lieutenant Cecil Leonard Knox who was attached to the 150th um, Field Company Royal Engineers who were, who were part of the complement of the 36th Ulster Divisions. Um, uh, engineering complement. Uh, he was he was tasked with destroying twelve bridges uh, on the on the uh, uh, St Quentin and, and uh, St Quentin Canal and the Somme River. And, and as I mentioned, the division had withdrawn across that on the on the night of the twenty first as part of an organised withdrawal. On the morning of, of uh, 
the 22nd, about 9 a.m., he was to destroy the bridge at a little village called Tunier Pont. And uh, he had everything primed. Uh, some British units had, had uh, managed just to get across, and he, the Germans were in hot pursuit. The Germans were, were within sight and, in fact, approaching the bridge, and he pushed the button, uh, but nothing happened. And uh, he immediately, without hesitation, ran forward onto the bridge, pulled the fuse out, put in an instantaneous fuse, and blew the bridge up on top of himself. Uh, miraculously, he survived relatively unscathed and uh, was was uh, awarded the Victoria Cross for, for his heroism. A remarkable, remarkable story. So what happened after the battle to the division? Did they actually survive right until the end of the uh, 100 days? They, they certainly did. And, and this is a this is one of the very interesting things that I discovered from, from my research. Um, by the end of end of March, they were withdrawn to, to billets near the French coast. Uh, and as I mentioned, they sustained over 6,000 casualties. In eight days, however, they were in the front line uh, near Plugsteard Wood uh, in Belgium, ready to meet the second phase of the German offensive operation, Georgette. But how, how did they manage this? Well, interestingly, in the reorganization of the infantry, which, which took place, which was forced upon, upon Field Marshal the Hague, uh, took place in, in January 1918, there were over 3,500 men deemed surplus to the division. So what they did with them was they formed three entrenching battalions, uh, named 21st, 22nd and 23rd. And these were withdrawn from divisional control and came under corps control. So these were fighting troops who had you know, fought at the Somme and fought at, at uh, Messines and uh, Cambrai. And now they're being asked to dig ditches and, and build aerodromes. And they weren't particularly happy about it. Uh, however, they, they came under corps control and, and were not used as much as the, as the, as the frontline infantry uh, battalions during the offensive. So whenever uh, the, the 36th Ulster Division got to their, their rest billets, these, the men from these three entrenching battalions were given back to the division. So you have three and a half thousand men straight away who know the division, uh, know, know how they operate, uh, they're trained, uh, they're battle-hardened. So they were able to to move straight away to to meet the uh, the, the new threat from the Germans. And not only uh, did they come through Operation Georgette, but they, they fought right from that point, right through the 100 days until the armistice. And, and by uh, by the 11th of, of November 1918, they, they ended up at, at Courtrai and were involved in some very heavy fighting um, towards the, the, uh, the end of October uh, and lost quite a few men just at, at the end of October. So um, they... The 36th Ulster Division, during, and my conclusion would be that they they, uh, they bent during the uh, spring offensive, but they never broke. And and if you were to ask any of them, I would say they, none of them looked upon themselves as, as, as a beaten man. Uh, they always knew that they would come good in the end. And finally, Michael, where can people get your book from? Well, I had great assistance in getting the book published from uh, Helian, and, and was uh, really very easy to work with them. So uh, the book can be obtained at helian.co.uk. Uh, also, uh, it's available on Amazon and uh, at branches of, of WH Smith and, and Decent's. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, Tom. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. 
It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.